Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Agenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 24th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I am going to present part 12 of our commentary on the epistles of John. This is titled, Guarding the Flock, because that's exactly what John is doing in his second epistle, and it will become evident how he guards the flock. We have recently completed our commentary on the first epistle of John, and now we shall move on to the second of the epistles attributed to the apostle. In our translation here, we have either followed or considered the readings of the 4th century codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, the 5th century codices Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus Graecus 2061, and another 5th or perhaps 6th century codex known only as Onkiel 0232, in which only the first nine verses of this epistle are attested, in whole or in part. These manuscripts and their differences with one another, and with the majority text, as they are presented in the critical apparatus of the 27th edition of the Nestle Eland Novum Testamentum Grece, were all considered in our translation or in the accompanying notes. Unfortunately, there are no ancient papyri, which have yet been discovered, which predate the 7th century, and attest to the text of either the 2nd or 3rd Epistles of John. For all of our translations throughout the New Testament, we considered readings from manuscripts which are esteemed to date to the 6th century and earlier, because I believe that they had the least amount of particularly Roman Catholic interference and interpolations. As I had also said in the preface of our presentation on the first epistle of John, while we possess a copy of the 28th edition of the Novum Testamentum Grece, which was first published in 2012, I have not yet, I don't know when I'm going to have this opportunity, I have not yet had the opportunity to compare its Greek text and critical notes to these translations. Our translation notes are based on the 27th edition, which was first published in 1993. The 20th edition does add 29 recently discovered papyri to the catalog of 98 New Testament papyri fragments from which readings were included in the 27th edition. But none of the newly added papyri fragments contain any portion of the epistles of John. That being said, the technical information being out of the way. Now, before we commence with the commentary, on this rather short second epistle of John, I am compelled to recollect some of John's most important teachings in that first epistle by comparing a passage from chapter 6 of the Wisdom of Solomon to aspects of the first epistle of John, which we have recently seen and discussed. I feel compelled to do this in order to address some recent criticism which I have received, 
for which I am persuaded that this is a timely and appropriate occasion. The sort of criticism contained in this recent message I've seen on quite a few occasions of my work, and it always seems unfair to me, and I will demonstrate that this evening. As we had explained in our commentary on chapter 4 of John's first epistle, love is in the law, and in more ways than one. First, it is codified in the law. As the law itself, I should say first, love is codified in the law. As the law itself insists that we both love our God and our brethren. This is explicit in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and elsewhere. Where we read, Thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thine heart. I think that statement appears perhaps a dozen times in Deuteronomy and in other books of the Old Testament. And also in Leviticus chapter 19, where it says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, that statement does not appear frequently in the books of Moses, but it does, of course, appear frequently in the Bible. It doesn't have to be in, in the New Testament, in the words of Christ. It doesn't have to be repeated in the law to be law. There are examples in the law which also compel love for one's brethren, even if they are not explicit. So then, immediately following that commandment, there is an admonition that ye shall keep my statutes. Furthermore, that commandment in Leviticus chapter 19. Furthermore, as the Apostle John had attested in chapter 5 of that epistle, by keeping the commandments in the law, we exhibit our love for both our God and our brethren. So love is in the law in that manner as well. Love is in the keeping of the law. John had written in the opening passage of that chapter, that by this we know that we should love the children of Yahweh, when we would love Yahweh and we would keep his commandments. For this is the love of Yahweh, that we should keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Keeping the law is therefore the manner by which we express our love for both our God and our brethren. This is not something which I have only recently begun to repeat. As we have presented these epistles of John, in our November 2016 commentary on Hebrews chapter 9, for verses 13 and 14 of that chapter, five years ago, just about two months short of five years perhaps, I said the following, in part, I said, under the new covenant, expiation for sin is not required, as Christ is the only propitiation. However, he does require his people to love their brethren and to keep his commandments. Love is keeping the commandments of God. As the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, yes, in Hebrews, in my Hebrews commentary on chapter 9, I was quoting the first epistle of John, so I'm going to repeat it here. 
For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. John repeated that theme several times in his epistles. Therefore, the children of Israel must know that under the system of the Old Covenant, they held off the wrath of God by making expiation for sin. While under the New Covenant, they gained the love of God by loving their brethren. In turn, they expressed that love for their brethren by keeping the commandments of God. The sacrifice of Christ represented the love of God for his people where he, de- where he died on their behalf. The devotion of his life on the altar of God in service to his brethren. In this manner, the blood of Christ is far superior to the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices, where men are shown the true path to the love of God in turn by devoting their lives to the brethren. Furthermore, still quoting my commentary. Furthermore, it must be known that the common morality found in the commandments of God in the scripture is not for the health of the individual only, but for the health of the community. When a man sins, he sins against the community, not only for what he has done, but also for what he has neglected. And that's the end of my quote. So the things that I've been teaching throughout this first epistle of John, because that is what John teaches, I was also teaching in five years ago in my commentary on Hebrews, because Paul really did teach those same things in different language. And it goes back even further than that in my ministry. While Solomon's method of teaching differed somewhat from that of both John and Paul, he used the love of wisdom as a metaphor for love of the Word of God. As wisdom is communicated to man through his Word. So in Wisdom Chapter 6, which we first discussed in a presentation titled The Wisdom of Kings sometime last year, I don't remember when, I didn't mark it, we read with some of our own translations. Wisdom is glorious. I'm reading from Wisdom chapter 6, verse 12. Some of these are my own retranslations of things which I didn't think that the King James Version got quite correct. Wisdom is glorious and never fades away. Yeah, she is easily seen of them that love her and found of such as seek her. She comes upon those who desire to know her beforehand. He arising for her in the morning shall not be wearied, for he shall find her sitting beside his gates. To think, therefore, upon her is perfection of wisdom, and whoso watches for her shall quickly be without care. For she goeth about seeking such as are worthy of her, showing herself favorably unto them in the ways, and meeting them in every thought. For the very true beginning of her is, and this is the important part, is the desire of discipline, and the care of discipline is love, and love is the keeping of her laws, meaning the laws of God. If you read the entire Wisdom of Solomon, that's the only conclusion possible. And the giving 
heed unto her laws is the assurance of incorruption, and incorruption makes us near unto God. Therefore, the desire of wisdom bringeth to a kingdom. So, according to Solomon, incorruption is a result of keeping the commandments of God, and that leads to the building of the kingdom of God. That also helps us to understand the parable of the leaven in the Gospels. The word for discipline is pahidia, I should say pahidaya, which is the training or education of a child. A pahis is a child, or specifically a son. And the word for schoolmaster is the Greek word pahidagogos, which is a guide of young boys who imparts pahidaya, which is education or discipline. Then Solomon explains that the care of such discipline is love. And love is the keeping of the law. So the law was our schoolmaster. It educated us. It trained us up. It was our leader in education. A pahidagogus is to literally to be a leader of young boys, a guide of young boys. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us under Christ. It is what imparts pahidaya, which is education, or discipline. So here we've seen Solomon explain that the care of such discipline is love, and love is the keeping of the law, just as we have seen in the words of John in the later chapters of his first epistle. Solomon teaching the same exact thing that John had taught in a different way concerning love and the commandments of Christ, the law of God. Then, just as incorruption makes us near to God, Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved to my father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. And then a little further on in chapter 15 of John's Gospel, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments, and abide in his love. Paul of Tarsus also taught that same thing in a different manner. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he wrote, for you know what instructions we gave to you by the prince. Paul wasn't making those instructions up. He had gotten those instructions from the Gospels of the Apostles. For this is the will of Yahweh, your sanctification. For you are to abstain from fornication. Here Paul mentions fornication seemingly out of the blue. Each of you are to know, to possess one's own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in emotions of passion, even just as the nations who do not know Yahweh, not to be excessive and to be greedy in business with one's brother, since the prince, or the Lord, if you will, is an avenger concerning all these things, just as also we have forewarned and affirmed to you. 
For Yahweh has not called us to uncleanness, but in sanctification. So then, he who is rejecting, rejects not man, but Yahweh, who is also giving his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by Yahweh for which to love one another. Therefore we see that John, Paul, Solomon, and Christ himself had all taught essentially the same message concerning the need to keep the commandments of God found in the law and related them both to the love of God and to the love of one's brethren. Of course, in other epistles. And on many occasions, Paul would mention many of the other sins which his Christian readers must not commit. However, in that passage from 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, he singled out fornication, which is how he had described race mixing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but also other illicit sexual relationships in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A careful reading of these words from Paul, from 1 Thessalonians, reveals that he is contrasting fornication with the possession of one's own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in emotions of passion. And then later on, he contrasts sanctification with uncleanness. Then, so fornication is the uncleanness of which he was speaking. Then, admonishing those who reject that teaching as having rejected the Holy Spirit of God, he contrasts that to the brotherly love of those who have accepted the word of God, as we have seen in our recent commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. He had also described fornication as the result or the end of other sins, the outcome of the life of the ungodly. So, in the opening chapters of wisdom, Solomon describes the attitudes of the ungodly, those who would rule by their own might rather than the commandments of God, who turn their backs on their own people and lusted for material satisfaction, whom he later described as having neglected and even having persecuted the righteous as they had forsaken, forsaken Yahweh citing especially Wisdom chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 10. Don't think it's a, an accident or a coincidence that I chose to present the Wisdom of Solomon in company with the Gospel and Epistles of John. They go hand in hand. The end of such men, the end of the wicked, is then described in their choosing of foolish wives, which we explained is the meaning of the phrase, their wives are foolish. Because as Solomon himself had proceeded to explain, for that very reason they are called adulterers, and their children are both wicked and cursed. So towards the end of Wisdom chapter 3, Solomon concluded that as for the children of adulterers, they shall come, not come to their perfection, 
and the seed of an unrighteous bed shall be rooted out. We establish in our commentary on wisdom, as in past commentaries here at Christogenia, that that word adultery in Greek was used by Greeks to describe race mixing as well as illicit relations with another man's wife. Then in chapter 4, Solomon further attested, But the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation. So, the progression of the wicked in the wisdom of Solomon leads from turning your back on your God and idolatry and covetousness to turning your back on your own people and then on to fornication and race mixing and the the sprouting of bastard slips. It's very clear to see that in Wisdom chapters 1 through 4. In Wisdom chapter 14, Solomon attested, that the devising of idols was the beginning of fornication and the invention of them, the corruption of life, according to our more accurate translation. The King James Version added a word, spiritual, which is not found in the Greek text. Solomon was speaking about fornication, race-mixing fornication, the same fornication, the same process that he described in Wisdom chapters 1 through 4. Then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul also, once again, set fornication apart from other sins, where he wrote, urging his readers to flee fornication, Every error which perhaps a man may make is outside of the body. But he committing fornication, for his own body he fails. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you, which you have from Yahweh, and you are not your own? Indeed, you have been purchased for a price. So then you honor Yahweh in your body by keeping it separate from the other races, which is the meaning of the term holy, to be separated and dedicated to the purposes of God, something which had only happened to Jacob and Esau in the loins of Isaac when Isaac was placed on the altar, except that Esau profaned himself and committed fornication, so his offspring were rejected, he could not inherit the covenants, they all fell upon Jacob. Yet we are often criticized for our explanation that race-mixing fornication is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the sin which cannot be forgiven, which causes death, a sin which John had also mentioned in the closing chapter of his first epistle. So my critic wrote in a recent personal message that, and I quote, and this is what he wrote, You also have set yourself up as a judge over sin, because you have set up race mixing as the primal sin, and downplayed everything else in the form of mere lip service. Then he said, and quite brazenly, meaning you condone such things as they come up in the scriptures. 
but it gets maybe 5% of the attention that race mixing does. So I condone other sins. This is news to me. I've never heard this in one of my podcasts. <laughs> Somehow I do not believe that our critics actually read or listen to any of our commentaries. As we have explained in Scatterers and Gatherers, it is Christ himself who connected blasphemy of the Holy Spirit with the assertion that good trees cannot bring forth bad fruit, nor can bad trees produce good fruit. He also asserted that all other sins would be forgiven men. Then he connected that same teaching about good and bad trees to the gathering of grapes from thorns and figs from thistles. He did that, not I. I'm only the sad, poor guy that knows how to read what he said. Wow. So in the final chapter of his first epistle, John attested that there was a sin unto death so grievous that men should not pray for those who commit it. And he also said earlier in that same epistle, in chapter 3, that whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. If one's seed is in him, he is evidently not a child of fornication. He is a son and not a bastard. If his seed is in him, then he could not possibly commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because, as John had said, for that reason alone, he cannot sin. But for bastards, there is no prayer because there is no propitiation in Christ. That alone sufficiently proves that race mixing is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit of which Christ had spoken. For that same reason, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, To me all is possible, but all does not profit. To me all is possible, but I will not yield authority to be brought under any. Foods are for the belly and the belly for foods. But Yahweh will do away with both this and these. Now the body is not in fornication, but in the prince. And the prince in the body. And Yahweh has both raised the prince, meaning Christ, and will raise up us through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, members of the anointed? Then having raised the members of Christ, shall I make members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he joining himself to the harlot is in one body? They shall be, he declares, two in the one flesh. But he joining himself to the prince is one spirit. In other words, if you don't have the spirit of God, you can't join yourself to the prince. That is the context in which he then wrote, as we have just cited, flee fornication. Every error which perhaps a man may make is outside of the body, but he committing fornication for his own body, he fails. Ostensibly, as we understand Genesis chapter 3, fornication was the first sin in the garden which caused the fall of Adam. It cannot be forgiven, as Solomon explained, because the children of adulterers, they shall not come to their perfection, and the seed of an unrighteous bed shall be rooted out. 
but all other sins shall be forgiven if a man has his seed in him, as the Apostle John had explained. This is a very simple concept, but perhaps I have failed to explain it adequately. Christ taught that all sins would be forgiven men except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. John taught that even if we sin, we are forgiven, having a propitiation in Christ. So for that same reason that all sins are forgiven, John also taught that a man cannot sin if his seed is in him. Therefore, the sin that cannot be forgiven is because a man does not have his seed in him. And that essentially means that he is a bastard. Therefore, bastards are blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and Yahweh will never forgive bastards. I challenge my critics to prove me wrong from Scripture, not from their damned feelings. Fuck their feelings. I don't care about their feelings. This is scripture. But of course, contrary to the claims of our critics, we do not downplay other sins or any of the balance of the law. A search, and now I'm going to bore you with some statistics, I apologize. A search of the 1,090 podcasts which we have publicly posted at Christagenia as of this day. Tonight it'll be 191, tomorrow night 192. A search of those podcasts shows that we have quoted the instruction of Christ to keep my commandments in 94 different podcasts. We may have cited it in others in different ways, since the word commandments is found in 329 of our podcasts which is over a quarter of the total, although sometimes it appears in other contexts. Sodomy is mentioned in 71 podcasts, murder in 143, and the commandment not to steal in 28. Is that number too few? Is 28 too few? The commandment, the same commandment not to steal, is repeated only five times in the entire King James New Testament. And the commandment not to kill is mentioned seven times, twice as murder, and the other five times as thou shalt not kill. Twice as murder in Matthew 19.18 and Romans 1.29. We have mentioned covetousness in 35 podcasts, and the word covet appears in 19. But the commandment not to covet is only mentioned four times in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5 and James chapter 2, where the word is translated as lust, and twice by Paul in his epistle to the Romans. Furthermore, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the law, which is probably the most often quoted book by Yahshua Christ, perhaps next to Isaiah, the book of Deuteronomy is mentioned or cited at least once, and usually more often, in 350 of our podcasts, nearly a third of the total. Leviticus is mentioned or cited at least once in 172 podcasts. Now, perhaps it is arguable that some of these sins may have been mentioned more often than what these figures reflect, but 
it is not very much more often. The fact that many of our podcasts are focused on historical topics rather than biblical subjects means that the ratio of our discussions of such sins in biblical contexts are much higher than these figures reflect. But my critic wrote, and I quote, as soon as you, as soon as any issues with idolatry, sexual immorality, drunkenness, or just generally unrighteous living, you immediately pass the buck right on down to the serpent instead of pointing the finger where God ultimately wants you to point it at yourself. Yet I consistently speak against sodomy, adultery, idolatry, drunkenness, and even other less grievous sins. For example, drunkenness is mentioned in 44 podcasts at Christogenia. But it is only mentioned in the New Testament on three occasions. Yet I found 44 occasions to mention it. In a September 2018 presentation with Dr. Michael Hill, titled The Role of Faith in a Successful Insurgency Movement or Community, a podcast which I had purposely written to define the most basic elements of our faith, I wrote in part, and I quote, Modern denominations have gradually become more and more tolerant of every sort of deviancy. Those who accept vice are every bit as guilty as those who commit it. As Paul of Tarsus had explained, referring to Romans chapter 1, vice destroys us, it destroys our families, and we cannot accept it at any level. This means giving up pornography, licentiousness, drunkenness, remaining chaste to one's own wife, not coveting thy neighbor's goods. We must sacrifice the satisfaction of our own lusts for the sake of our community. I wrote that in September 2018. For my part, I am of the opinion that this is the attitude which I have always displayed towards all such sin during the entire course of my ministry at Christogenia. So our critic is a liar and a fool to claim that we ignore or gloss over or, as he said, pass the buck for such sins over such sins as drunkenness or that we place the blame on anything but the weakness of those who commit them. Nowhere have I ever said that the Jews make us sin, but rather, I have always explained that Jews rule over us on account of our sin, even if it is clear that Jews have always been the purveyors of many of the sins which plague our society. And in fact, in our March 2011 commentary on Revelation chapters 17 and 18, Ten years ago, I wrote the following. After the French Revolution, the Jew was free to disseminate not only countless false religions and false philosophies, but also all of the fleshly distractions of which he is history's most famous propagator. Pornography in pulp novels, pornography in a the theater, gambling houses, prostitution, 
the corruption of children, and every other vice imaginable has become commonplace in modern, white, formerly Christian society. The Jew, the eternal panderer, has now come to rule over white society because white Christians participated in the sins of the Jew or at least permitted them under the guise of freedom rather than taking a stand against them at the start. For that, because white Christians were smitten by the vices of the Jew. I'm not blaming the Jew. I'm blaming the white Christians for accepting those vices. Yahweh God has put it into their hearts to hand their kingdom over to the beast. End of my quote from my 2011 podcast over ten and a half years ago. Of course, I stand by these words today, but by no means do they place the blame for our sins on the Jews. Rather, those words place the blame for sin on Christians for tolerating such sins in the first place. Then, in my August 2018 presentation, to show the consistency of my message, which was titled, Why Do We Suffer?, I said in part, in reference to Leviticus chapter 5, that it is not good enough for us as individuals to simply be good. Rather, it is a matter of God's law, that if we do not stand against the evil which we witness— then we become just as responsible for it as those who partake in it. That's the law in Leviticus chapter 5, even though it's poorly translated in the King James Version. Likewise, Paul tells us the reasons for the decadence and immorality in ancient Rome in Romans chapter 1. And from there, and that's the end of my quote, But from there, I went on to cite Paul's teaching in that same chapter that not only those who sin are responsible for their sins, but those who approve of the sinners. So it is evident that our critic has not read or listened to many of our presentations. And perhaps he only knows of us through the words of our enemies, men such as Ryan Brennan, Michael Brandenburg, and Nathan Tom, who all began to slander us when we rejected their heresies. Admittedly, we do speak more often of the sins of fornication and sodomy, because those are the most grievous sins which are now being accepted by the greater society, even by the vast majority of supposedly Christian churches. If a man does not know that it is a sin to steal or to be a drunkard, then perhaps he belongs in Sunday school rather than at Christagenia. And I never heard of a church which would advocate such behavior. Growing up in Catholic school and being compelled to attend church, the few sermons which I may recall, maybe it's only one sermon, the few sermons which I may recall had condemned drunkenness and lust. But many modern churches are permitting or even advocating race mixing and sodomy. These sins are the most prevalent in our society today, and that is the signal reason why I mention them more frequently.
Those two sins are destroying our race beyond any others. Even though, as we read in the Wisdom of Solomon, all the other sins, such as idolatry, the forsaking of God, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 1, because the Romans forsook God, he gave them up to sodomy. Solomon explained that forsaking God and going off into idolatry, men are led down the path to race mixing. We've been warning about all of these things. Of course, I can't mention all of these things in every podcast, but I've mentioned them all in 28, thou shalt not steal, in 28, or 70, or 90, or 45, or 350 podcasts. And more of my podcasts concern history, because that's the basis for Christogenia. But that doesn't mean I don't talk about sin, mentioning Deuteronomy, citing and quoting. Deuteronomy, 350 times, I probably quoted 100 different passages from the law in those 350 times. The prevalence of which we mention fornication and sodomy, because we do mention those, as I admitted, much more frequently than other sins, in that we also follow the New Testament. While the commandments not to steal or commit murder are mentioned about a half dozen times each, if if I want to average out five and seven, as I counted them quickly this afternoon, the commandments not to steal or commit murder are mentioned about half a dozen times each. Fornication is mentioned in 28 verses in the New Testament. So were Paul of Tarsus and Yahshua Christ wrong for that? I mean, Paul only mentioned covetousness twice in the book of Romans, in the epistle to the Romans, twice. He spoke against covetousness that I could see. It might be in there one or two more times. Let's give it four. Maybe covetousness is against it is in the list of sins that we shouldn't commit in 1 Corinthians or in Galatians. So maybe it's in there four times. But he mentioned fornication 14 times. And Christ in the Revelation and in the Gospels mentioned fornication 12 times. Many times more than he mentioned murder or stealing. Once fornication is found in Jude, and once in the words of the enemies of Christ in John chapter 8. So we won't attribute that mention to Christ, of course. Well, we are certainly not perfect. And therefore, we are not above criticism. Our critics are mostly just fools. They should write us with the facts of Scripture to show where we may be wrong, rather than whining, because they themselves are not man enough to stomach our disposition. If we place a greater significance on the grievousness of fornication, it is because Christ and his apostles also placed a greater significance on the grievousness of that sin. So go scold Jesus for mentioning drunkenness once or twice and for mentioning fornication 12 times. Go scold Paul for mentioning drunkenness once or twice or covetousness maybe two or three times and fornication 14 times. Christ and his apostles also taught 
that one's seed must be undefiled if one is to be found without sin. In other words, one cannot be a product of fornication because there is no propitiation for bastards, period. That must be the unforgivable sin, which is easy to see in those words in this first epistle of John, as I have demonstrated. Now turning our attention to the second epistle of John. We shall commence with our presentation and commentary. The elder to the elect mistress and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those knowing the truth, on which account the truth abides in us and shall be with us forever. Some manuscripts have the truth dwells in us, <coughs> which is fine. Here, John the Apostle refers to himself simply as the elder or presbyter, the Greek word being presbyteros, an adjective which describes an elder. That's the word from which Presbyterian was taken, a church run by a council of elders, where Episcopalian comes from the word episcopus in Greek, which was corrupted with a B into episcopus in Latin. And episcopus in Latin became bisiop, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, B-I-S-C-E-O-P-E in Middle English and bishop in Modern English. So the Presbyterian Church is run by a council of elders, supposedly. I don't know if that's the way it works in practice. I've never been to one. But an Episcopal church is run by bishops. John introduces himself in the same manner in his third epistle, as the elder. As we have demonstrated already at length, John did not refer to himself with his own name in his gospel or in any of his three epistles. But in his gospel, he did describe himself in ways by which we can understand that he certainly is the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, who is mentioned by name in the other gospel accounts. Then, in his first epistle, although he did not mention his own name, he had attested in its opening verses that he is the same John as the author of the gospel by that name. The content manner throughout the first epistle and other features such as the poetic references to Christ also indicate that the author is the John of the Gospel. In turn, there is much internal evidence within that Gospel which proves that John the son of Zebedee is its author. The same John is the author of the Revelation, which he had received from Yahshua Christ which is attested in the opening verses of the Revelation in the same manner as it is in the opening verses of the first epistle of John. One further indication that the author of this epistle is the same as 1 John is the appearance of the word Antichrist in verse 7, a word which only appears in the scripture in the first and second epistles of John. 
Other indications are in the general content of the epistle, which is very similar to much of the content of the first. Warnings concerning the Antichrist, admonitions to love your brethren and keep the commandments. As it is recorded by early Christian writers among the so-called Church Fathers, John survived the exile in Patmos in the days of Domitian, I believe, to return to Ephesus. I always get Domitian and Diocletian confused. Don't ask me why. They were a couple of centuries apart. John survived the exile in Patmos to return to Ephesus, where he recorded the revelation. It is our opinion, although it cannot be proven, that John was in Ephesus and wrote his gospel before his exile. And that may have been also the reason for his exile. But in the Revelation, the message to the seven churches is described as being delivered through John himself, where we read in the opening verses, Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him, meaning from Christ, from him which is, and which was, and which is to come. So while these epistles of John cannot be dated, it is evident that they too were written to Christians in Ephesus at a later point in John's life, probably around the same time when he had published the Revelation. While the first epistle is a general epistle, the second and third are personal epistles written by the apostle and addressed to particular individuals. Here in these opening verses of 2 John, addressing this woman with the title Curia, or as we have translated it here, Mistress, it is apparent that she is a woman of means the head of her household, and perhaps a widow. The word curia is the feminine form of curious or lord, which was a title of respect for men of means. It is plausible that she is a widow, as John writes to her directly, making no mention of her husband. Where John had attested by addressing this woman, as one whom I love in truth, and not I only, but all those knowing the truth. He professes that he loves her because she herself is in the truth and expects all men who are found in the truth to love her for that same reason, because she's a Christian. Then where he wrote in verse 2, that on which account the truth abides in us and shall be with us forever. This is also a lesson from chapter 14 of his gospel, where he recorded the words of Christ which had promised another comforter, verse 16, that he may abide with you forever, and then in verse 17, even the spirit of truth. So, as we had often observed in our commentary on the first epistle of John, this one also teaches a practical application of things which John had learned from Christ and recorded in his gospel account. Continuing with verse 3. Favor, mercy, peace shall be with us from Yahweh the Father and from Yahshua Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. 
the King James Version has you rather than us. Favor, mercy, peace. It actually has grace be with you, mercy, and peace. Contrary to the majority text, the majority text has us. So the King James Version very rarely diverges from the majority text, but it does happen from time to time. The King James Version here was contrary to the majority text, but in agreement with some manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate and a few late Greek manuscripts. So that's interesting to a historian of scripture, I would imagine. But it's interesting to me, so I think it's important that I speak about that once in a while. In truth and in love. Here John must be referring to that same brotherly love which Christ had taught his disciples, which can only be the love which is also expressed in the law in Leviticus chapter 19, that the children of Israel should love their own people as the word neighbor is defined in the law, the children of thy people. Moving on to verse 4. I rejoiced exceedingly because I found some from among your children Walking in truth, just as we have received a commandment from the Father. The Codex Sinaiticus has they in that spot, just as they have received a commandment from the Father. The epistle is addressed to the elect mistress and her children. So here where John refers to ectone technon, which is literally only from of your children followed by a plural participle describing a plurality of children walking. It is evident that this woman may have had quite a large family of children, and at least some of them were walking in the truth, as John describes, and were with John, as we shall see at the end of the epistle. But, the woman still had other children with her as the epistle was addressed to the elect woman and her children. So some children went off and that John and other children stayed behind with the woman. And now I ask you, mistress, not as if writing a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that you should love one another. Now, there must be a particular reason why John felt an urge to write this particular message to this woman, as if there were some fault which had been observed by him or reported to him when he met her children. We see at the end of this epistle that those children were with John as he wrote this epistle. That reason for which he admonishes her shall become evident as we proceed with the additional admonishments which follow. The woman was already a Christian, as John had professed in the opening verses, as she was already established in truth, or in the truth. That doesn't mean that she had the whole truth, or John would not have had to write her an epistle. But it is not clear as to whether this is truly his second epistle. So it cannot be taken for granted that the woman has had an occasion to read the first, or perhaps she would have already received this teaching. 
It is very possible that these three epistles of John were written in a completely different order than the manner in which they are popularly arranged in our Bibles. We can't tell the order from the content of the epistles, but it's very possible that they were written in a very different order. So John continues his first admonishment in verse 6. And this is the love, that you would walk in accordance with his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that in this you should walk. Of course, John is still referring to the same commandment, which he had mentioned in verse 5, that you should love one another. In his first epistle, John had mentioned this, John had first mentioned this in chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, he wrote, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So he says the same exact thing here. In reference to John's statement that this commandment was heard from the beginning, we commented on that passage from the first epistle, and we wrote, here John also makes the assertion that to love one another is the message which you have heard from the beginning. Throughout the gospel, Christ had admonished his followers to love their neighbors, and he even called that admonishment the second greatest commandment of the law, where a lawyer had tempted to try him, and we read in Matthew chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 22, where he asked him, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Then answering, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And of course, Christ retrieved one of those commandments in his mind from the book of Deuteronomy and the other one from Leviticus chapter 19. We also wrote, in part, in relation to 1 John 3.11, in separating the wheat, our commentary on that chapter, that in chapter 5 of this epistle, the apostle explains how to love one's brother where he wrote, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. So if the love of God is to keep his commandments, that is how all men should express love for their brethren, simply by keeping the commandments of God. While a man may add to that with good works of charity, there is no love for one's brethren apart from the keeping of the commandments of God. Same thing I had written five years ago, commenting on Hebrews chapter 9 and citing that same passage in John chapter, 1 John chapter 3. But now John changes the subject from an admonishment to love one another, to an admonishment warning the woman of those whom Christians should hate. Doing this, we see that John is guarding the flock 
which is the very purpose of his having written this epistle. So in verse 7, and he doesn't use the term hate, but he is certainly explaining who it is that Christians should hate. For many deceivers have come into the society, those not agreeing that Yahshua Christ, meaning the Messiah, comes in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Well, of course, Christ came in the flesh, but Yahshua Christ comes in the flesh means that the Messiah of Israel came in the flesh. So here once again, John describes a singular Antichrist as the plural collective of those not agreeing that Yahshua is the Christ. In chapter 3 of John's first epistle, we commented on length on Christ and Antichrist, where he had even written where he had written that even now many antichrists have been born, and he had then attested that they came out from us, but they were not from of us. As we also explained, those words in John's time could only describe the Edomite Judeans, the Edomite Jews, who were converted to Judaism in the late 2nd and early 1st century B.C., and who, under the family of the Edomite king Herod, had come to control the province under the Romans, who had opposed Christ himself, and whom Christ had told, but you believe not, because you are not of my sheep. These people, called by the name Jews today, are indeed the Antichrist, as John also describes them as a collective here, since he uses the term many deceivers and those not agreeing. He uses the term Antichrist in the singular to describe many deceivers and those not agreeing, and not just single, some single deceiver who would only come at some time still afar off in John's future. John's Antichrists were already born into the world. And they were born, as he said very clearly in 1 John chapter 3, or chapter 2, I'm sorry. Among these antichrists must have been some of the very same hypocrites whom Christ had upbraided for raiding the houses of widows. And we have already presented the very plausible reasons for believing that this woman is a widow. So we read in words attributed to Christ in Matthew chapter 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. So perhaps this is the very reason why John had first admonished the woman to love one another. And after this, he further admonishes her not to accept anyone who does not abide in the teachings of Christ. Allowing a wolf into the congregation, you are not loving one another. So we may conclude that this woman has accepted the company of a devil an Antichrist Jew, 
And in that context, everything which John admonished her in this epistle falls into place. Therefore, continuing his warning, he tells the woman and her children who are still with her, watch yourselves that you would not lose the things which we have accomplished, but you would receive a full reward. The word translated as lose, apolumai, may have been, or apolumi, I should say, I'm sorry, apolumi, may have been rendered more severely as destroy. While the full extent of the things which we have accomplished are not evident to us now, as we do not know the condition of the development of the church at the time when John was writing, perhaps he is referring to the development of the church in Ephesus. That, and I will establish that at least circumstantially a little later on, that as Antichrist infiltrated it, then it would eventually become corrupt. Christians should not be concerned with their own personal salvation, but rather they should be seeking to establish the kingdom of heaven. In the Revelation, in the message which John had delivered for the church at Ephesus, it is evident that there was already some corruption, and perhaps John was trying to hold the line, guarding the flock. In Revelation chapter 2, we read something which John's statement here seems to reflect. For the messenger of the assembly in Ephesus, write, Thus says he, commanding the seven stars in his right hand, he walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil and patience, and that you are not able to bear evils, and have tried those calling themselves ambassadors or apostles, yet they are not, and you have found them liars. And you have patience and have endured on account of my name and have not grown weary. But I hold against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do these first works. But if not, I shall come to you and I shall remove your lampstand from its place if you should not repent. This other thing you have, that you hate the works of the people conquerors, or Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He having an ear must hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. To he who prevails, I shall give to him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of Yahweh. And of course, as John explains in his first epistle, one prevails when his seed is in him. The Nicolaitans, or people conquerors, certainly seem to be the same false brethren of which Paul of Tarsus had warned the Galatians in chapter 2 of his epistle to them, where he wrote, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, quoting the King James Version, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. That's the rejection of the people conquerors, the Nicolaitans. Ostensibly, the teachings of Paul, 
who spent three years in Ephesus and found the churches, founded the churches there, perhaps 35 years before John wrote the Revelation, must have been the first love which they had later abandoned. So John strengthens his admonitions concerning the Antichrist, and he says in verse 9 of our epistle, Each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not Yahweh. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. Now, rather than going forth here, the majority text, and therefore also the King James Version, have transgressing, a form of the verb parabahino, rather than of proago. The difference is significant. John is not speaking of sinners here, but of those antichrists whom as he had written in 1 John chapter 2, went out from us, but they were not of us. Our text, which has going forth from the verb proago, follows the 4th century codexes Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and the 5th century codexes Alexandrinus and Uncial 0232. John had written, in the same manner, in the opening verses of chapter 4 of his first epistle. Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of Yahweh, because many false prophets have gone out into society, those antichrists. By this you know the spirit of Yahweh, each spirit which professes that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh is from of Yahweh, meaning the Hebrew Messiah of the Old Testament. And each spirit which does not profess Yahshua is not from of Yahweh. And this is the Antichrist, whom you have heard that it comes and is already now in society. Now here, he seems to be offering a practical application of that teaching. And next, he offers a practical Christian response to those Antichrists. And he says in verse 10, if one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house and do not speak to welcome him. That's the bid him Godspeed of the King James Version. means to welcome somebody. By this we are further assured that he was indeed speaking of people where he said that each spirit which does not profess Yahshua is not from of Yahweh and this is the Antichrist. So once again, John is speaking of the Jews who had denied the Christ. In chapter 5 of his own first epistle, Peter had written a similar warning, speaking of the same Jews, where he said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Evidently, he was trying to devour the house of this widow. The world is more complex today. As much confusion has been sown these past 2,000 years. But Christians should not receive Jews 
and other antichrists, such as Muslims or even Buddhists or those of any other race or religion, into their houses, and Christians should not even speak to welcome them simply because they do not bear the teachings of the Christ. How far we have fallen from the teachings of the apostles of Christ. So John makes an even more ominous warning in verse 11. For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. As we have already mentioned this evening, by welcoming a sinner, one is approving of their sins. As Paul of Tarsus had explained in Romans chapter 1. Speaking of the children of disobedience who await the wrath of God, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul had offered his own warning, his own similar warning, where he said, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. So by welcoming a Jew into one's home or community, one takes a share in the responsibility for all of the evil which the Jew is certain to commit so long as he is there. Now John indicates that there is much more that he would like to say to this woman. Having many things to write to you, I have not had desire by paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that your joy would be fulfilled. John had many more things to say to the woman, and he was reluctant to have to do so in writing. Here it is evident that she was close enough to him so that he could travel to see her. And ostensibly, this letter said what things John thought were most important for this woman to hear, while it also served as a means by which he may introduce himself to her. But it is evident that the things which he did tell her were calculated, and her children must have come to John as an elder because they thought she needed to hear these things. Ostensibly, John's warnings were guarding the flock against those very same wolves about which Paul had warned the elders of Ephesus over 30 years later in Acts chapter 20, where he had told them, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So John closes. The children of your elect sister greet you. And here we learn that John is with some of the children of this woman. But the children are not necessarily the ones delivering this message, or perhaps John would not have passed along a greeting from them. As we had suggested, perhaps these children had come to John in Ephesus for this very purpose. Because here, it is evident that their mother needed such a warning. This concludes our brief commentary on the second epistle of John. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.